Chapter One of Frederick the Great. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nicholas Clifford, Middlebury, Vermont, USA. Frederick the Great by Thomas Babington Macaulay. Chapter One. The Edinburgh Review, April eighteen forty-two. Footnote: Frederick the Great and His Times. Edited with an introduction by Thomas Campbell, Esquire, two volumes, octavo, London, 1842. This work, which has the high honour of being introduced to the world by the author of Lochiel and Hohenlinden, is not wholly unworthy of so distinguished a chaperone. It professes, indeed, to be no more than a compilation, but it is an exceedingly amusing compilation, and we shall be glad to have more of it. The narrative comes down at present only to the commencement of the Seven Years' War, and therefore does not comprise the most interesting portion of Frederick's reign. It may not be unacceptable to our readers that we should take this opportunity of presenting them with a slight sketch of the life of the greatest king that has, in modern times, succeeded by right of birth to a throne. It may, we fear, be impossible to compress so long and eventful a story within the limits which we must prescribe to ourselves. Should we be compelled to break off, we may perhaps, when the continuation of this work appears, return to the subject. The Prussian monarchy, the youngest of the great European states, but in population and revenue the fifth among them, and in art, science, and civilization, entitled to the third, if not to the second place, sprang from a humble origin. About the beginning of the fifteenth century, the Marquisate of Brandenburg was bestowed by the Emperor Sigismund on the noble family of Hohenzollern. In the sixteenth century, that family embraced the Lutheran doctrines. It obtained from the King of Poland, early in the seventeenth century, the investiture of the Duchy of Prussia. Even after this accession of territory, the chiefs of the House of Hohenzollern hardly ranked with the electors of Saxony and Bavaria. The soil of Brandenburg was for the most part sterile. Even round Berlin, the capital of the province, and round Potsdam, the favourite residence of the Margraves, the country was a desert. In some places the deep sand could with difficulty be forced by assiduous tillage to yield thin crops of rye and oats. In other places the ancient forests, from which the conquerors of the Roman Empire had descended on the Danube, remained untouched by the hand of man. Where the soil was rich it was generally marshy, and its insalubrity repelled the cultivators whom its fertility attracted. Frederick William, called the Great Elector, was the prince to whose policy his successors have agreed to ascribe their greatness. He acquired by the Peace of Westphalia several valuable possessions, and among them the rich city and district of Magdeburg, and he left to his son Frederick a principality as considerable as any which was not called a kingdom. Frederick aspired to the style of royalty. Ostentatious and profuse, negligent of his true interests and of his high duties, insatiably eager for frivolous distinctions, he added nothing to the real weight of the state which he governed. Perhaps he transmitted his inheritance to his children, impaired rather than augmented in value, but he succeeded in gaining the great object of his life, the title of king. In the year 1700 he assumed this new dignity. 
he had on that occasion to undergo all the mortifications which fall to the lot of ambitious upstarts compared with the other crowned heads of europe he made a figure resembling that which a nabob or a commissary who had bought a title would make in the company of peers whose ancestors had been attainted for treason against the plantagenets the envy of the class which frederick quitted and the civil scorn of the class into which he intruded himself were marked in very significant ways the elector of saxony at first refused to acknowledge the new majesty louis the fourteenth looked down on his brother king with an air not unlike that with which the count in moliere's play regards monsieur jourdain just fresh from the mummery of being made a gentleman austria exacted large sacrifices in return for her recognition and at last gave it ungraciously frederick was succeeded by his son frederick william a prince who must be allowed to have possessed some talents for administration but whose character was disfigured by odious vices and whose eccentricities were such as had never before been seen out of a madhouse he was exact and diligent in the transacting of business and he was the first who formed the design of obtaining for prussia a place among the european powers altogether out of proportion to her extent and population by means of a strong military organization strict economy enabled him to keep up a peace establishment of sixty thousand troops these troops were disciplined in such a manner that placed beside them the household regiments of versailles and st james would have appeared an awkward squad the master of such a force could not but be regarded by all his neighbours as a formidable enemy and a valuable ally but the mind of frederick william was so ill-regulated that all his inclinations became passions and all his passions partook of the character of moral and intellectual disease his parsimony degenerated into sordid avarice his taste for military pomp and order became a mania like that of a dutch burgomaster for tulips or that of a member of the roxburgh club for caxton's while the envoys of the court of berlin were in a state of such squalid poverty as moved the laughter of foreign capitals while the food placed before the princes and princesses of the blood royal of prussia was too scanty to appease hunger and so bad that even hunger loathed it no price was thought too extravagant for tall recruits the ambition of the king was to form a brigade of giants and every country was ransacked by his agents for men above the ordinary stature these researches were not confined to europe no head that towered above the crowd in the bazaars of aleppo of cairo or of surat could escape the crimps of frederick william one irishman more than seven feet high who was picked up in london by the prussian ambassador received a bounty of near thirteen hundred pounds sterling very much more than the ambassador's salary this extravagance was the more absurd because a stout youth of five feet eight who might have been procured for a few dollars would in all probability have been a much more valuable soldier but to frederick william this huge irishman was what a brass otho or a vinegar bible is to a collector of a different kind it is remarkable that though the main end of frederick william's administration was to have a great military force though his reign forms an important epoch in the history of military discipline and though his dominant passion was the love of military display he was yet one of the most pacific of princes
we are afraid that his aversion to war was not the effect of humanity but was merely one of his thousand whims his feeling about his troops seems to have resembled a miser's feeling about his money he loved to collect them to count them to see them increase but he could not find it in his heart to break in upon the precious hoard he looked forward to some future time when his patagonian battalions were to drive hostile infantry before them like sheep but this future time was always receding and it is probable that if his life had been prolonged thirty years his superb army would never have seen any harder service than a sham fight in the fields near berlin but the great military means by which he had collected were destined to be employed by a spirit far more daring and inventive than his own frederick surnamed the great son of frederick william was born in january seventeen twelve it may safely be pronounced that he had received from nature a strong and sharp understanding and a rare firmness of temper and intensity of will as to the other parts of his character it is difficult to say whether they are to be ascribed to nature or to the strange training which he underwent the history of his boyhood is painfully interesting oliver twist in the parish workhouse smike at dotheboys hall were petted children when compared with this wretched heir apparent of a crown the nature of frederick william was hard and bad and the habit of exercising arbitrary power had made him frightfully savage his rage constantly vented itself to right and left in curses and blows when his majesty took a walk every human being fled before him as if a tiger had broken loose from a menagerie if he met a lady in the street he gave her a kick and told her to go home and mind her brats if he saw a clergyman staring at the soldiers he admonished the reverend gentleman to betake himself to study and prayer and enforced this pious advice by a sound caning administered on the spot but it was in his own house that he was most unreasonable and ferocious his palace was hell and he was the most execrable of fiends a cross between moloch and puck his son frederick and his daughter wilhelmina afterwards margravine of bayreuth were in a special manner objects of his aversion his own mind was uncultivated he despised literature he hated infidels papists and metaphysicians and did not very well understand in what they differed from each other the business of life according to him was to drill and be drilled the recreations suited to a prince were to sit in a cloud of tobacco smoke to sip swedish beer between the puffs of the pipe to play backgammon for three halfpence of rubber to kill wild hogs and to shoot partridges by the thousand the prince royal showed little inclination either for the serious employments or for the amusements of his father he shirked the duties of the parade he detested the fume of tobacco he had no taste either for backgammon or for field sports he had an exquisite ear and performed skilfully on the flute his earliest instructors had been french refugees and they had awakened in him a strong passion for french literature and french society frederick william regarded these tastes as effeminate and contemptible and by abuse and persecution made them still stronger things became worse when the prince royal attained that time of life at which the great revolution in the human mind and body takes place 
he was guilty of some youthful indiscretions which no good and wise parent would regard with severity at a later period he was accused truly or falsely of vices from which history averts her eyes and which even satire blushes to name vices such that to borrow the energetic language of lord keeper coventry the depraved nature of man which of itself carrieth man to all other sin abhorreth them but the offences of his youth were not characterized by any peculiar turpitude they excited however transports of rage in the king who hated all faults except those to which he was himself inclined and who conceived that he made ample atonement to heaven for his brutality by holding the softer passions in detestation the prince royal too was not one of those who were content to take their religion on trust he asked puzzling questions and brought forward arguments which seemed to savour of something different from pure lutheranism the king suspected that his son was inclined to be a heretic of some sort or other whether calvinist or atheist his majesty did not very well know the ordinary malignity of frederick william was bad enough he now thought malignity a part of his duty as a christian man and all the conscience that he had stimulated his hatred the flute was broken the french books were sent out of the palace the prince was kicked and cudgelled and pulled by the hair at dinner the plates were hurled at his head sometimes he was restricted to bread and water sometimes he was forced to swallow food so nauseous that he could not keep it in his stomach once his father knocked him down dragged him along the floor to a window and was with difficulty prevented from strangling him with the cord of the curtain the queen for the crime of not wishing to see her son murdered was subjected to the grossest indignities the princess wilhelmina who took her brother's part was treated almost as ill as mrs brownrigg's apprentices driven to despair the unhappy youth tried to run away then the fury of the old tyrant rose to madness the prince was an officer in the army his flight was therefore desertion and in the moral code of frederick william desertion was the highest of all crimes desertion says this royal theologian in one of his half-crazy letters is from hell it is a work of the children of the devil no child of god could possibly be guilty of it an accomplice of the prince in spite of the recommendation of a court-martial was mercilessly put to death it seemed probable that the prince himself would suffer the same fate it was with difficulty that the intercession of the states of holland of the kings of sweden and poland and of the emperor of germany saved the house of brandenburg from the stain of an unnatural murder after months of cruel suspense frederick learned that his life would be spared he remained however long a prisoner but he was not on that account to be pitied he found in his jailers a tenderness which he had never found in his father his table was not sumptuous but he had wholesome food in sufficient quantity to appease hunger and he could read the henriad without being kicked and could play on his flute without having it broken over his head when his confinement terminated he was a man he had nearly completed his twenty-first year and could scarcely be kept much longer under the restraints which had made his boyhood miserable suffering had matured his understanding while it had hardened his heart and soured his temper he had learned self-command and dissimulation 
he affected to conform to some of his father's views and submissively accepted a wife who was a wife only in name from his father's hand he also served with credit though without any opportunity of acquiring brilliant distinction under the commander of prince eugene during a campaign marked by no extraordinary events he was now permitted to keep a separate establishment and was therefore able to indulge with caution his own tastes partly in order to conciliate the king and partly no doubt from inclination he gave up a portion of his time to military and political business and thus gradually acquired such an aptitude for affairs as his most intimate associates were not aware that he possessed his favorite abode was at Rheinsberg, near the frontier which separates the prussian dominions from the duchy of mecklenburg Rheinsberg is a fertile and smiling spot in the midst of the sandy wastes of the marquisate the mansion surrounded by woods of oak and beech looks out upon a spacious lake there frederick amused himself by laying out gardens in regular alleys and intricate mazes by building obelisks temples and conservatories and by collecting rare fruits and flowers his retirement was enlivened by a few companions among whom he seems to have preferred those who by birth or extraction were french with these inmates he dined and supped well drank freely and amused himself sometimes with concerts and sometimes with holding chapters of a fraternity which he called the order of bayard but literature was his chief resource his education had been entirely french the long ascendancy which louis the fourteenth had enjoyed and the eminent merit of the tragic and comic dramatists of the satirists and of the preachers who had flourished under that magnificent prince had made the french language predominant in europe even in countries which had a national literature and which could boast of names greater than those of racine of moliere and of massillon in the country of dante in the country of cervantes in the country of shakespeare and milton the intellectual fashions of paris had been to a great extent adopted germany had not yet produced a single masterpiece of poetry or eloquence in germany therefore the french taste reigned without rival and without limit every youth of rank was taught to speak and write french that he should speak and write his own tongue with politeness or even with accuracy and facility was regarded as comparatively an unimportant object even frederick william with all his rugged saxon prejudices thought it necessary that his children should know french and quite unnecessary that they should be well versed in german the latin was positively interdicted my son his majesty wrote shall not learn latin and more than that i will not suffer anybody even to mention such a thing to me one of the preceptors ventured to read the golden bull in the original with the prince royal frederick william entered the room and broke out in his usual kingly style rascal what are you at there please your majesty answered the preceptor was explaining the golden bull to his royal highness all golden bull you you rascal roared the majesty of prussia up went the king's cane away ran the terrified instructor and frederick's classical studies ended for ever he now and then affected to quote latin sentences and produced such exquisitely ciceronian phrases as these stante pede morire de gustibus non est disputandus tot verbas tot spondera 
of italian he had not enough to read a page of metastasia with ease and of the spanish and english he did not as far as we are aware understand a single word as the highest human compositions to which he had access were those of the french writers it is not strange that his admiration for those writers should have been unbounded his ambitious and eager temper early prompted him to imitate what he admired the wish perhaps dearest to his heart was that he might rank among the masters of french rhetoric and poetry he wrote prose and verse as indefatigably as if he had been a starving hack of cave or osborn but nature which had bestowed on him in a large measure the talents of a captain and of an administrator had withheld from him those higher and rarer gifts without which industry labours in vain to produce immortal eloquence and song and indeed had he been blessed with more imagination wit and fertility of thought than he appears to have had he would still have been subject to one great disadvantage which would in all probability have forever prevented him from taking a high place among men of letters he had not the full command of any language there was no machine of thought which he could employ with perfect ease confidence and freedom he had german enough to scold his servants or to give the word of command to his grenadiers but his grammar and pronunciation were extremely bad he found it difficult to make out the meaning even of the simplest german poetry on one occasion a version of racine's iphigenie was read to him he held the french original in his hand but was forced to own that even with such help he could not understand the translation yet though he had neglected his mother tongue in order to bestow all his attention on french his french was after all the french of a foreigner it was necessary for him to have always at his beck some men of letters from paris to point out the solecisms and false rhymes of which to the last he was frequently guilty even had he possessed the poetic faculty of which as far as we can judge he was utterly destitute the want of a language would have prevented him from being a great poet no noble work of imagination as far as we recollect was ever composed by any man except in a dialect which he had learned without remembering how or when and which he had spoken with perfect ease before he had ever analyzed its structure romans of great abilities wrote greek verses but how many of those verses have deserved to live many men of eminent genius have in modern times written latin poems but as far as we are aware none of those poems not even milton's can be ranked in the first class of art or even very high in the second it is not strange therefore that in the french verses of frederick we can find nothing beyond the reach of any man of good parts and industry nothing above the level of newdigate and setonian poetry his best pieces may perhaps rank with the worst in dodsley's collection in history he succeeded better we do not indeed find in any part of his voluminous memoirs either deep reflection or vivid painting but the narrative is distinguished by clearness conciseness good sense and a certain air of truth and simplicity which is singularly graceful in a man who having done great things sits down to relate them on the whole however none of his writings are so agreeable to us as his letters particularly those which are written with earnestness and which are not embroidered with verses it is not strange that a young man devoted to literature and acquainted only with the literature of france 
should have looked with profound veneration on the genius of Voltaire. A man who has never seen the sun, says Calderon, in one of his charming comedies, cannot be blamed for thinking that no glory can exceed that of the moon. A man who has seen neither moon nor sun cannot be blamed for talking of the unrivalled brightness of the morning star. Had Frederick been able to read Homer and Milton, or even Virgil and Tasso, his admiration of the Henriade would prove that he was utterly destitute of the power of discerning what is excellent in art. Had he been familiar with Sophocles or Shakespeare, we should have expected him to appreciate Zaire more justly. Had he been able to study Thucydides and Tacitus in the original Greek and Latin, he would have known that there were heights in the eloquence of history far beyond the reach of the author of the life of Charles the Twelfth. But the finest heroic poem, several of the most powerful tragedies, and the most brilliant and picturesque historical work that Frederick had ever read were Voltaire's. Such high and various excellence moved the young prince almost to adoration. The opinions of Voltaire on religious and philosophical questions had not yet been fully exhibited to the public. At a later period, when in exile from his country, and at open war with the church, he spoke out. But when Frederick was at Rheinsberg, Voltaire was still a courtier, and though he could not always curb his petulant wit, he had as yet published nothing that could exclude him from Versailles, and a little that a divine of the mild and generous school of Grotius and Tillotson might not read with pleasure. In the Henriade, in Zaire, and in Alcia, Christian piety is exhibited in the most amiable form, and some years after the period of which we are writing, a pope condescended to accept the dedication of Mahomet. The real sentiments of the poet, however, might be clearly perceived by a keen eye through the decent disguise with which he veiled them, and could not escape the sagacity of Frederick, who held similar opinions, and had been accustomed to practice similar dissimulation. The prince wrote to his idol in the style of a worshipper, and Voltaire replied with exquisite grace and address. A correspondence followed, which may be studied with advantage by those who wish to become proficients in the ignoble art of flattery. No man ever paid compliments better than Voltaire. His sweetest confectionery had always a delicate yet stimulating flavour, which was delightful to palates wearied by the coarse preparations of inferior artists. It was only from his hand that so much sugar could be swallowed without making the swallower sick. Copies of verses, writing-desks, trinkets of amber, were exchanged between the friends. Frederick confided in his writings to Voltaire, and Voltaire applauded as if Frederick had been Racine and Bossuet in one. One of his Royal Highness's performances was a refutation of Machiavelli. Voltaire undertook to convey it to the press. It was entitled The Anti-Machiavel, and was an edifying homily against rapacity, perfidy, arbitrary government, unjust war, in short, against almost everything for which his author is now remembered among men. The old king uttered now and then a ferocious growl at the diversions of Rheinsberg, but his health was broken, his end was approaching, and his vigour was impaired. He had only one pleasure left, that of seeing tall soldiers. He could always be propitiated by a present of a grenadier of six feet four or six feet five, 
and such presents were from time to time judiciously offered by his son. Early in the year 1740, Frederick William met death with a firmness and dignity worthy of a better and wiser man, and Frederick, who had just completed his twenty-eighth year, became King of Prussia. His character was little understood. That he had good abilities, indeed no person who had talked with him or corresponded with him could doubt. But the easy Epicurean life which he had led, his love of good cookery and good wine, of music, of conversation, of light literature, led many to regard him as a sensual and intellectual voluptuary. His habit of canting about moderation, peace, liberty, and the happiness which a good mind derives from the happiness of others, had imposed on some who should have known better. Those who thought best of him expected a Telemachus after Fenelon's pattern. Others predicted the approach of a Medicean age, an age propitious to learning and art, and not unpropitious to pleasure. Nobody had the least suspicion that a tyrant of extraordinary military and political talents, of industry more extraordinary still, without fear, without faith, and without mercy, had ascended the throne. The disappointment of Falstaff at his old boon companion's coronation was not more bitter than that which awaited some of the inmates of Rheinsberg. They had long looked forward to the accession of their patron as to the event from which their own prosperity and greatness was to date. They had at last reached the promised land, the land which they had figured to themselves as flowing with milk and honey, and they found it a desert. No more of these fooleries was the short, sharp admonition given by Frederick to one of them. It soon became plain that in the most important points the new sovereign bore a strong family likeness to his predecessor. There was indeed a wide difference between the father and the son as respected extent and vigour of intellect, speculative opinions, amusements, studies, outward demeanour, but the groundwork of the character was the same in both. To both were common the love of order, the love of business, the military taste, the parsimony, the imperious spirit, the temper irritable even to ferocity, the pleasure in the pain and humiliation of others. But these propensities had, in Frederick William, partaken of the general unsoundness of his mind, and wore a very different aspect when found in company with the strong and cultivated understanding of his successor. Thus, for example, Frederick was as anxious as any prince could be about the efficiency of his army. But this anxiety never degenerated into a monomania like that which led his father to pay fancy prices for giants. Frederick was as thrifty about money as any prince or any private man ought to be, but he did not conceive, like his father, that it was worth while to eat unwholesome cabbages for the purpose of saving four or five rix dollars in the year. Frederick was, we fear, as malevolent as his father, but Frederick's wit enabled him often to show his malevolence in ways more decent than those to which his father resorted, and to inflict misery and degradation by a taunt instead of a blow. Frederick, it is true, by no means relinquished his hereditary privilege of kicking and cudgelling. His practice, however, as to that matter, differed in some important respects from his father's. 
the frederick william the mere circumstance that any persons whatever men women or children prussians or foreigners were within reach of his toes and of his cane appeared to be a sufficient reason for proceeding to belabour them frederick required provocation as well as vicinity nor was he ever known to inflict this paternal species of correction on any one but his born subjects though on one occasion m thiebaud had reason during a few seconds to anticipate the high honour of being an exception to this general rule End of chapter 1